I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. I just wanted to let you know I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the heart of a story to draw correlations and discover patterns in the way that God works in the world. The Book of Numbers is, in many ways, a repeat of the Book of Exodus. Exodus tells the story of Hashem leading the people out of slavery in Egypt and to Mount Sinai. Numbers tells the story of Hashem leading the people away from Mount Sinai and the people repeatedly seeking to return to Egypt. Exodus is full of miraculous acts of God towards those who were rebellious and had a hard heart. And here in the central portions of Numbers, we find the same thing explored. Miraculous acts of God directed towards those who are rebellious and who have a hard heart. In Exodus, we learn of the place that Hashem wishes to build for the purpose of dwelling with his people. In Numbers, we find Hashem dwelling with his people. In Exodus, we read primarily of Hashem's faithfulness, with one short aside that reveals our human treachery. In Numbers, we read primarily of our human treachery, and undergirding it all is Hashem's faithfulness to his people. In Exodus, we read of Hashem steeped in the language of a husband with Israel as his bride, forming a covenant based on love and revealing his intimate characteristics to his people. In Numbers, we read of Hashem steeped in the language of a father, with Israel as a son, willing to punish to achieve beneficial change, punishing because he loves the one that he is raising up to bear his image. And the comparisons and the contrasts go on and on. And as I've stated before, we discover as we go through these books that the book of Exodus is a revelation of Hashem, his character and attributes Exodus develops Hashem's reputation and it reveals his authority, his compassion, love, and faithfulness. Numbers, on the other hand, reveals the corollary. This book reveals the nature of man, our character, and reputation. And most of all, Numbers reveals our own tendency towards treachery and rebellion. And as I highlighted last week, this tendency is revealed in Numbers begins with the tongue. It begins with our speech speaking out against the things of God. In chapter 11, it was the gift of God and the manna that the people spoke against. Instead, they held up Egypt as the place that was good, with the fruit that was good. In chapter 12, it was the anointed leader of Israel that a small section of people spoke out against. 
Aaron and Miriam in their pride spoke against Moses because he did not conform to their expectations of how a leader should act. Last chapter, it was the promise and Hashem's ability to bring them into the promise that the people spoke against. They doubted that he was able to actually deliver them into the promise. They doubted that the promise was even worth the difficulty that they would face getting there. And this week? Well, this week things don't get any better. The murmuring and slandering and complaining and doubting all come to a head. The faithlessness of the community comes out in full force as the slanders of the previous week are combined and then one-upped, and the consequences are drastic and far-reaching. So let's read this week's Parsha and then dig into this chapter. Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel grumbled against Moshe and against Aaron, and all the congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Mitzrayim, or if only we had died in this wilderness. And why is Hashem bringing us to this land, to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become prey? Would it not be better for us to turn back to Mitzrayim? And they said to each other, Let us appoint the leader, and let us turn back to Mitzrayim. Then Moshe and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Yehoshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, were among those who had spied out the land, tore their garments. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Hashem has delighted in us, then he shall bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which is flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Hashem, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their defense has turned away from them, and Hashem is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the esteem of Hashem appeared in the tent of appointment before the children of Israel. And Hashem said to Moshe, How long shall I be scorned by these people, and how long shall I not be trusted by them? With all the signs which I have done in their midst, let me strike them with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moshe said to Hashem, Then the Mitzrites shall hear of it, for by your power you brought these people up from their midst, and they shall say to the inhabitants of the land, They have heard that you, Hashem, are in the midst of the people, that you, Hashem, are seen eye to eye, and that your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a column of cloud by day, and in a column of fire by night. Now if you shall kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your report shall speak, saying, because Hashem was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he slew them in the wilderness. And now, I pray, let the power of Hashem be great, as you have spoken, saying, Hashem is patient of great loving kindness, forgiving crookedness and transgression, but by no means leaving unpunished, visiting the crookedness of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please forgive the crookedness of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, as you have forgiven this people from Mitzrayim even until now. And Hashem said, I shall forgive according to your word, but truly, as I live, and all the earth is filled with the honor of Hashem. For none of these men who have seen my honor and the signs which I did in Mitzrayim and in the wilderness, and have tried me now these ten times, and have disobeyed my voice, shall see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor any of those who scorned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and has followed me completely, I shall bring into the land where he went, and his seed shall inherit it, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are dwelling in the valley. Turn back tomorrow, and set out into the wilderness by the way of the Sea of Reeds. 
And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this evil congregation have this grumbling against me? I have heard the grumblings which the children of Israel are grumbling against me. Say to them, As I live, declares Hashem, as you have spoken in my hearing, so I do to you. The carcasses of you who have grumbled against me are going to fall in this wilderness. All of you who were registered according to your entire number from twenty years old and above, none of you except Caleb the son of Yephunneh and Jehoshua the son of Nun shall enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would become a prey, I shall bring in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your carcasses are going to fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be wanderers in the wilderness forty years, and shall bear your whorings until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a day for a year, a day for a year. You are to bear your crookednesses forty years, and you shall know my breaking off. I am Hashem, I have spoken. I shall do this to all the evil congregation who are meeting against me. In this wilderness they are consumed, and there they die. And the men whom Moshe sent to spy out the land who returned made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing an evil report of the land. Even those men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before Hashem. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Yehoshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Yephunneh remain alive. And when Moshe spoke these words to all the children of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, See, we have indeed sinned, but we shall go up to the place which Hashem has spoken of. But Moshe said, Why do you now transgress the mouth of Hashem, since it does not prosper? Do not go up, lest you be smitten by your enemies, for Hashem is not in your midst, because the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from Hashem. Hashem is not with you. But they presumed to go to the mountaintop. But neither the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem nor Moshe left the camp. So the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and struck them, and beat them down even to Chormah. It is said that nothing travels faster than bad news. And this chapter is a great example of this occurring. Numbers 14 picks up where the narrative left off last week. The tourists had just returned from their 40-day tour of the land, and in the end, they turned their mission from one of reporting on all the good of the land, the fruitfulness and the cities and the gain that Israel had to look forward to occupying, and instead, they gave a military spying report, a report of what kind of forces they were going to face and the perceived danger that they were in, things that they were not tasked with reporting on. And in this chapter, the evil report that was given last chapter before the elders then spreads to the rest of the nation, and all the congregation lifted up their voices and wept. And alongside the spread of bad news, there's no other emotion that spreads faster than fear. And the fear that the spies felt last week, it catches hold. It kindles a fire in the midst of Israel. And by morning, it has become a raging inferno. Over the next four verses, the people repeat each of the complaints that they have already seen punished in the previous three chapters. The three events that have led up to this chapter, and each we discover is a repeat of a grumbling event from the book of Exodus. All Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. A repeat of the events from chapter 12. Now rather than simply a family dispute and a disagreement among the top leadership on matters of social compliance, now it's the entire nation slandering the chosen leaders of the community, the spark that Miriam kindled causing a fire that has engulfed the nation. This complaint, though, is not a new complaint. We read this very type of grumbling before in the book of Exodus. 
Exodus 16, when the people ran out of food and had nothing to eat, we read this. Exodus 16, verse 2. And all the congregation of the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people then followed this grumbling against the leadership with another complaint that we find, again, was a complaint from the Exodus. Exodus 14.11 And they said to Moshe, Did you take us away to die in the wilderness because there were no graves in Egypt? What is this that you have done to us to bring us up out of Egypt? And Exodus 17.3 And the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And this grumbling, for the first time, it leads to a conclusion that had not yet been expressed by the people. Let's just go back. Let's appoint our own leader, rather than these leaders that Hashem appointed, and let's go back to Egypt and throw ourselves on their mercy. After countless times of presuming on God's mercy, now the simple solution is to trust in Egypt's mercy. Never mind that the country was destroyed to bring them out, and that returning would not provide for them the things that they were seeking. And in all of this, we find several things of great importance. First off, the complaints haven't changed. The experience at Mount Sinai did not change the people. They had a very real encounter with the Most High God, and this encounter did nothing to change their hard hearts. In fact, back in chapter 11, we read that the spirit that was on Moses was given to 70 of the elders, and even this was not enough to change these people from who they had been into whom Hashem was molding them to be. Instead, the people persisted and continued in the same worn-out old rut, returning to the proverbial vomit over and over again. And that brings up the second thing of interest the discontent of the people with the appointed leaders, the plan that God had for them and their lives, leads them to take a very drastic form of action, one that has felt its repercussions throughout the ages. Their discontent and fear led Israel to invent democracy. Let us appoint a leader, and then he can do what we, the people, want for him to do. He can lead us in our image, rather than the appointed leader that is leading us to God's image. And this new leader, he can lead us back to the human ideal of greatness, rather than the godly ideal of greatness. He can lead us into the land of comfort, rather than the land of promise. Back into slavery, back into where they had come from in the first place. But at least there they were comfortable there they had a variety in their diet, and there the fear was a known and a manageable fear. And it's here, from the will of the people, that Korah receives his legitimacy in two chapters, this attempt at a democratically elected leader rather than simply trusting in God's appointed leaders. Now, I'm not trying to draw any allusions to the current political climate in the United States or anywhere else. In these statements. I'm simply digging into the ideas that underlie the text. And in this, we find a seeds of the beast system. But that is for another day. In the face of this opposition, we find two men. Perhaps we could even say two witnesses who stand up against this, against the entire nation of people who have decided to set up their own government, and as we'll see in two weeks, their own form of worship.
and they stand up and they declare the truth of the plan and the promises of God. The land is good, and the plan is good. If Hashem delights in us, we will succeed. And please don't let your fear of what might happen lead you to rebellion. These people that you are afraid of are weak and defenseless. Do not fear them. But the people persist, and they seek to stone them. Once again, an echo from the Exodus. Exodus 17.4 Then Moshe cried out to Hashem, saying, What am I to do with these people? Yet a little, and they shall stone me. And while it seemed like just a threat or fear before, now it is a very real possibility. You get the impression that people are actively gathering stones to use as ammunition. There was a real danger to these faithful men in this moment. Why? Because they dared to say things that contradicted the narrative. They dared to speak against the fear that the people were feeling. They dared to share the gospel, the good news of the promise. And so it is with this very real bodily threat to the few that had remained righteous that Hashem intervenes by revealing His glory to those gathered against His chosen. Now this is something that happens over and over throughout Scripture. In Kings, we read of this happening in the challenge that Elijah lays before the prophets of Baal. In Isaiah, Kings and Chronicle, we read of this happening outside the very gates of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, we read of the story in the conversion of Paul. One man who was part of those who were stoning the faithful of Hashem. And as he was going to Damascus to persecute the budding church there, God intervened by revealing his glory to Paul. And yet, there are other times when a person is facing death and God's glory is revealed, but not as an intervention. Rather, it's revealed to give courage and to give comfort. One time that we see this happening was at a time that featured a stoning with Paul present. At the stoning of Stephen, we read this, Acts seven fifty-five through 60 But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, looked steadily into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And crying out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and rushed upon him with one mind. And they threw him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul. And they were stoning Stephen as he was calling out, saying, Master Yeshua, receive my spirit. And kneeling down, he cried out with a loud voice, Master, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The fact is that the glory of God is present at the death of each of his faithful, either to act in intervention or as welcome, to welcome them home. For the next eight verses, we read a near exact repeat of passages from Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. At first, it begins with Hashem's anger burning against the congregation, as it did in the incident with the golden calf. They are rebellious. They are hard-hearted. In Exodus 32, it is, Leave me that my anger might be kindled against them and consume them. Here, the threat is made to release a pestilence among the people. And this itself is another repeat from the book of Exodus in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. In Exodus, this statement is directed towards the hard-hearted Pharaoh, and it is a demonstration of the mercy of Hashem that he did not strike them down with a pestilence. 
But here, in Numbers 14, this is a real threat that is directed back at those who had threatened the lives of his faithful servants, and it is based on Hashem's judgment. And in both cases, an offer is extended to Moses. Exodus 32.10 And now let me alone, and that my wrath might burn against them, and I consume them, and I make of you a great nation. And here in Numbers 14.12 Let me strike them with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Both times Hashem offers Moses the opportunity of becoming the patriarch that would begin a new chosen people to replace the stiff-necked and rebellious people. And both times, Moses refuses the offer and instead stands in defense of the people. Now this strikes me as odd because just a few chapters ago in chapter 11, Moses was fed up with these people himself. They had come to him grumbling and requesting meat of all things. And Moses, in his frustration, asks God to simply kill him. If you are doing this to me, then just kill me. I don't want this heavy burden anymore. The story itself containing many echoes from Exodus, including a giant swarm of quail, Moses' heavy burden being relieved by the appointment of elders, and this very request of, Take me out now if you, Hashem, won't act in a certain way. Regardless, just a short time later, and Hashem is offering Moses the opportunity of being done with the people and elevated to the position of patriarch. And what is Moses' response? Hashem, you can't do this. You can't kill off these people, not for my sake or for their sake, but for your own name's sake. You have made a promise to these people, and the nations know about this promise. They have heard what you did to Egypt, and they all know where you intend to take them. And if you kill Israel out here, then the nations will malign and disrespect your name. They will say, you're not powerful enough, that you were not capable. They will misunderstand, as nations tend to do, and everything that you have done up to this point, the revelation of your power, your authority, the reputation that you have built, everything that's been accomplished that we read of in the book of Exodus will be for nothing. You have stated that you are going to bring this people into the land of Canaan, so you can't kill them now and be a god of your word. And it is this quality that caused Hashem to choose Moses in the first place. Two chapters ago, we read that Moses was the most humble man in all of the earth. How many of us would have stood up for this people? This thankless, complaining lot that never gave you a moment of peace and never obeyed? Would you have interceded on their behalf? How many of us would have said, well, uh, okay, God, I, I guess we do it your way. Go ahead, make me great, if that's what you want. Then elevate me to a place of great honor and authority and prestige and power. If that's your desire, I humbly accept your decision to make my name great and to take away this burden in one fell swoop. Instead, Moses turns this down in favor of making Hashem's name great. He sacrificed the potential further elevation and the solution to his own issues with the people in favor of ensuring the plan of Hashem is fulfilled. The name of Hashem is protected from those who simply would not understand. And then Moses does something that he did not do in Exodus 32. He calls on Hashem to act in his character. 
And why is it that Moses did not call on these character traits of Hashem in Exodus 32? Well, it's because they weren't revealed to Moses until Exodus 34. The revelation of the character of Hashem did not occur until after the people had rebelled and the new covenant was being cut with them. And it was the institution of this new covenant of Exodus 34 that Hashem passed before Moses and declared his character. Exodus 34, 6-7 And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed Hashem, Hashem, a God compassionate and showing favor, patient and great in loving kindness and truth, watching over loving kindness for thousands, forgiving crookedness and transgression and sin, but by no means leaving unpunished visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And it's these very character qualities that Moses repeats back to Hashem. You say you are a God of forgiveness and loyalty and covenant. So please act in this character towards your people even now, even after they have rebelled and maligned your gifts your leaders, your promises, even your name, power, and authority, please forgive them. And so, a compromise is reached. One that maintains Hashem's justice, and at the same time upholds his reputation that he had spent so much time building. One that upheld the promise to Israel. One that upheld the covenant to Abraham that was made 400 years before. These people that are here today, These men who were brought out of Egypt and have witnessed firsthand the miracles that I've done in their midst, these people who have spoken against me and tried me ten times, these people are done. They will die here in the wilderness and never see the land themselves. However, I will still bring these people, the children of Israel, into the land that I promised, but it won't be these people. They were so concerned earlier about their children becoming prey for the inhabitants of the land. Well, now God is going to turn them into the predators in the land. The nation that they're going in to possess is going to melt before them. But you, the ones standing there today, will never get to see the land. But there is to be an exception to this. Caleb Caleb will be allowed to enter the land. Why? Well, because he has a different spirit in him. He has followed obediently. So this brings up the question. What happened to the 70 elders of chapter 11? There were 70 men who had the spirit that rested on Moses put on them as well. There was this Pentecost-style covering of the spirit, and yet these men were unable to quell the people. As far as we know, these men may have been part of this rebellion. What happened to them? Where did they go? And more importantly, why were they unable to prevent this from occurring? And I think that the answer lies in the fact that having the Holy Spirit does not prevent a person from sinning. We still have a choice to sin even after we've been empowered with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is indeed a helper. It gives us power to keep God's commands, but it won't force us to do anything. It only ever offers an option, and we can do or not do, as seems best to us. If we are a believer in Yeshua the Messiah, then it is incumbent upon us to seek to choose to follow the commands of God, and it is the Holy Spirit that then enables us to keep His commands. 
And the reason for this failure is found in another aspect of the story that we will get to in just a moment. After the exception to the judgment is announced, then the specifics of the judgment are pronounced. Everyone who is 20 years old or older will die within the next 40 years. And we are not leaving this wilderness until every single one of you is dead. And the next generation is going to be the ones who inherit the land. They will be those who come into the promise. For forty years, one year, for each of the days that the spies spent exploring the land, Israel will be unable to take the land. They will be unable to achieve the promise. Now, there isn't this an idea that is found in the writings of Paul in several places. The idea that the old man must pass away and that a new man must take his place. And this judgment in the stories that we have read, they are exemplary of just this. The old generation had to pass away because this old man was unable to walk in the promises of God. Even with a new spirit, the old man is not capable of living as Hashem intends. 1 Corinthians 15.50 I tell you this brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Romans 8.6-8 For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Colossians 3, 5-10 Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, whoring, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and greed of gain which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them, but now also put off all these, displeasure, wrath, evil, blasphemy, filthy talk from your mouth. Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old man with his practices, and have put on the new one who is renewed in knowledge according to the likeness of him who created him. This is a truth of faith in Hashem. You cannot serve him while the old man is still alive. That old nature must die. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I've talked before about how we each go through the wilderness in our own lives as we draw closer to God, and this is one of the purposes of the wilderness, to put to death the old man and replace it with the new. A new man that survives solely on the bread from heaven. A new man that does not know Egypt, but only Hashem and his faithfulness. A new man that is willing to walk in the power of Hashem and his word. A new man that can stand against the enemy in faith. And this is something that is revealed in the course of this book. This book that is named In the Wilderness in the Hebrew. We must go through the change of heart. That old heart of stone must be replaced with a heart of flesh. And that change of heart is a process, and it's one that we face with others. When Israel faced their problem, when Israel doubted and slandered and chose to live in their flesh, it was not Moses who counseled them. It was Caleb and Joshua, their brothers. When we face seemingly insurmountable sin in our life, we cannot expect that we will deal with it on our own, and we cannot expect our mediator to counsel us. He will mediate on our behalf. Our head, Messiah, Moses in this case, is not the one who can counsel us through this, though. It takes brothers and sisters. Because we are a body. 
We are a community. We are joined together in the covenant of God. Many of us have dealt with the sin that you are facing now. Many of us have been through the challenges that you are facing. I myself have dealt with addiction in various forms, whether it's pornography, cigarettes, video games. I've dealt with anger, even rage, various forms of lust and greed and sexual immorality, filthy talk, gossip, and slander, just to name a few. And if there's one thing that the Torah teaches us, it's that sin is not a private matter. It's a community matter. Adam's sin was not a private matter. We all pay for that one. Achan thought his sin was private when he took the goods of Jericho. That was until 36 of his brothers died because of his sin, and then later his entire family paid for his sin. David sinned with Bathsheba, and then the murder of her husband caused the death of his son. This later led to one of his sons raping his sister, a civil war led by his son and the death of countless thousands. His sins of the census caused thousands of directly attributable deaths. And there are other examples of the sin of one person leading to the death and judgment of those who were in community with them. And the fact is that we are a community. We are a body. If one part is not well, then the whole is not well. The pride that keeps us from admitting our ongoing sins to others will end up harming all of us. That lifting up of ourselves is a presumption of God's grace, a presumption that Israel partakes in at the end of this chapter. Sin in the body must be dealt with. It is essential. You don't keep cancer around. You destroy it. And that's why God gives us each other, to lift each other up, to counsel each other, and to bear each other's burdens. Galatians 6, 1-3 Brother, if a man is overtaken in some trespass, you, the spiritual ones, set such a one straight in the spirit of meekness, looking at yourself lest you be tried too. Bear one another's burdens and so complete the Torah of the Messiah. For if anyone thinks himself to be somebody when he is not, he deceives himself. This is our purpose in community. Not simply to tell stories and to get to know each other as a social club. Fellowship is wonderful and amazing, but accountability and support is where the true power of community lies. Becoming a group of nobodies who are willing and able to offer and to receive counsel and correction. And in the end, the people choose to repel against this new reality. The counsel of their brothers did nothing to sway them. And in this final rebellion, we find another motivator to disobedience. In chapter 11, it was lust, or a great desire, that motivated the people. In chapter 12, it was pride that motivated Aaron and Miriam in their slander. In chapter 13 and 14, up through verse 10, it's fear that motivates the people. But here, at the end of the chapter, some in Israel decide that they will now obey. After judgment has already been leveled at them. Despite the fact that obeying now would be no obedience at all, but rather disobedience. Despite the fact that Hashem... Moses and the ark did not go with them. They doubled down on their disobedience, and their reason for it is one that is actually quite well documented in psychological circles.
Their motivator is something that we can all deal with. Their motivation is grief. In verse 39, the people hear the words of Moses and they mourn greatly. And the following morning, they succumb to the first stage of grief, denial. This generation has just lost their motivator, the thing that they had been living for, the promise that had been given to them, their reason for being here in this wilderness in the first place. And it's now beyond their reach. It's done and over with for them. They've blown their chance because of their lack of faith. And in their grief, they enter the stage of denial and they react poorly and they go ahead and they act contrary to the new information. They deny the judgment and grasp for the promise after so recently denying it. And we see in this something similar to the way Moses acted earlier in the chapter. They challenge the word of God. You see, earlier in the chapter, God had threatened to wipe out these people, and Moses had pleaded with him to change his mind, and he did. And so in this instance, the judgment has been pronounced. The people recognized their sin. They confessed their sin. They were sorrowful and mournful of their sin. And now they're repenting by turning away from their previous course of action. God should accept this change of heart and allow them to take the land now, right? Confession, repentance, sorrow at having done wrong? He couldn't possibly reject this change of heart, could he? Now perhaps, just as he did with Moses, he will rescind his decision and allow them to succeed where they had failed the day before. But he doesn't rescind the judgment, and they don't succeed in taking the land. They fail miserably all because they get caught up in their grief and allow their motivation to lead them into sin. We're going to catch glimpses of this over the next several weeks. By the end of chapter 17, we will see each of the five stages of grief present in the actions of the people. Denial, we see this week. Then comes anger. Then comes bargaining. Then comes depression. And finally, acceptance. And it is this grief that motivates so much of what is upcoming. And this grief is founded on the foundation of their own sin and disobedience. And this is something that we must protect ourselves from. Because grief is such an easy motivator for sin. I didn't get my way. I lost the one I love. I lost the job or the thing that was important to me. And in our responses of denial and anger and depression, we can easily allow sin to slip in and overtake us, as Israel does. And this chapter closes this first portion of what not to do while in the wilderness, because the wilderness contains many pitfalls. But it also contains many blessings for those who continue in faith. Those who continue to trust Hashem, His gifts, leaders, promises, and plans. But for those who rebel, those who insist on having it their way, or having their desires gratified, or who think that they can do it on their own, for them, there's only one result in the wilderness. Ezekiel chapter 20, 35-38 And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and shall enter into judgment with you face to face there. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so I shall enter into judgment with you, declares the Master Hashem. And I shall make you pass under the rod, and shall bring you into the bond of the covenant, 
and purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me from the land where they sojourn, I bring them out, but they shall not come into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Hashem. Those who rebel in the wilderness, those who choose to return to the places and circumstances that will gratify their flesh, those rebels will be cut off. And this book of Numbers, it gives us the key to avoiding this fate. The temptation that you will face and the choices that you are going to want to make are revealed here. Don't succumb. Trust Hashem in the midst of it. And on the other side, there will be blessing overflowing. And that blessing, in the fullest sense, is life. So Deresh Chai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.